is looking at you. Hello and welcome to Here's Looking at You, a podcast where we explore the intersections of gender, sexuality and performance. I'm Dr Ellen Wright and I'm a lecturer in cinema and television history who specialises in representations of gender and sexuality in Hollywood cinema in the first half of the 20th century. Today's podcast, podcast number eight, is entitled What Happens in Blackpool Stays in Blackpool and it explores the carnivalesque world of the freak show in British working class seaside resorts in the early to mid 20th century. Today I'm interviewing Emma Peirce, assistant lecturer in history at the University of Kent who researches the intersecting histories of disability and entertainment and is seeking to challenge a common assumption that freak shows died out around the time that the First World War ended and war-disabled veterans returned home. On a personal level, I spent 10 years as part of the British burlesque scene, being inured in burlesque and cabaret culture, so it's perhaps not surprising that I have a strong interest in freak shows, medicine shows, carnival, fairgrounds, circus, vaudeville, peep show, and so on and so forth. I'm also particularly interested in the Hollywood musical, which has always displayed a preoccupation with these sorts of carnivalesque populist forms too. I'm always keen to learn more. Our conversation is very much focused around unusual bodies and their celebration and exploitation, around the politics of looking and being looked at, around issues of taste and class around the display of the unusual body and around the seaside as a permissive space. We discussed broader societal factors that informed debate and led people to enter into freakery as a means of making a living, and Emma offers up some fascinating examples of such attractions. So folks, if you'll just step this way, let's take you into the world of the British Seaside Freak Show. Today I have a rather exciting guest with me. I have Emma Purse with me. And um i think maybe it's probably best emma if it's all right if i get you to explain to my listeners uh what it is that you find interesting and that you are you have an expertise in okay brilliant um, <laughs> my work is primarily situated in the history of disability and the history of entertainment i researched the history of freak shows at british seaside resorts in the 20th century um so much of the scholarly work already undertaken by people such as Robert Bogdan, Rosemary Golden Thompson and Nadia Durbeck. They analysed freak shows as representations of Victorian society and culture. So they researched famous freaks such as Joseph Merrick, The Elephant Man um, and General Tom Thumb, a well-known midget performer, um, and used them to understand how the public understood themselves in relation to the unusual body. Um, and I take this idea into the 20th century, so I look at um, disability and representations of disability after the First World War up until 1950, um, and specifically looking at the seaside space and how um, freaks were really constructed as, for, as a form of entertainment, mm. um, but also still had this uh, idea of understanding um, who we are in relation to who we're not, so it's people are looking at them both as an entertainment but also as a form of education as well straight away you're, you're saying something to me that I find I mean there's lots of interesting stuff in there but something that's really leaping out to me is you're saying that you're focused particularly on seaside resorts and sort of these freak shows at seaside resorts what, why there why those spaces what do you think it is about those spaces that lend themselves to this sort of entertainment yeah I think that's a really interesting question the seaside space is a space so different to what 
the public were used to. They're they're taken away from their working lives and and placed into an environment where the focus is on leisure and pleasure and fun. So often they engaged in lots of different types of um, things that they weren't really allowed to do the rest of the time. So um, they engage in inappropriate sexual relations, for example. Anything that's regarded inappropriate in the everyday context is suddenly allowed at the seaside resort. Yeah. So they're able to eat lots of different foods that they might not normally do. Yeah. Or partake in different activities I think the seaside resort um, really lends itself to fruit shows being part of that it's, a, mm. it's no longer accepted in everyday cities and everyday life but it's still a, a, a throwback to an entertainment that we might not be able to look at this person anymore but we'll do it on our seaside holiday um, so I think it's a really interesting space where lots of different behaviours that are unacceptable in the everyday suddenly are kind of acceptable for that two week period yeah. that you're on holiday so it's kind of a case of what happens in Blackpool stays in Blackpool sort of a thing then we're dealing with yeah, essentially. Definitely, yeah. Okay. But then it's also got this really interesting side that people go on holiday with the communities that they are in. So mm. people are still alongside the people that they would normally be working alongside, but still everybody kind of engages in this yeah. um, slightly risque form of behaviour. So it's okay. Yeah, yeah. So definitely a case of what happens <laughs> stays in Blackpool <laughs> okay um yeah I mean that sort of stuff really fascinates me anyway I really find that idea interesting that this you know that the specific seaside towns that specific factories and specific towns go to like the whole town just decamps to another town you know yeah. at a particular time of the year I, I love the idea of that um so I've put here then about my work being on visual media. So I work in film studies and I'm also kind of interested in sort of theatre and photography. I've taught photography as well. And so the stuff that I write on tends to be about the politics of looking and uh, who is allowed to look, who's not allowed to look when the you know sort of the idea of the the person who's looking maybe has more power over the person who's being looked at i wondered if there's any of that sort of coming into play in the stuff that you look at now am i right in thinking that you for example you do some work around the idea is it the starving bride and that sort of thing is that yeah. something could you talk to me a, a bit about that can you explain that to me that sounds absolutely fascinating yeah it's probably the freak show that I like the most I think mm -hmm. is really really interesting so the starving brides were both men and women oh. um, who starved themselves in um, glass coffins so they were shaped like coffins they were cold coffins um, and they were usually newly married couples um, right. they'd sometimes be separated by a bit of wood so they'd be both in the same coffin but separated um, and basically they starved in front of onlookers men, women and children um, to earn money to set up their marital home um, it's part of a wider oh trend really of starving in general so we don't just have starving brides um, but we also have um, champion fasters as well who <laughs> just competitively continued to starve themselves for about 65 days yeah um, 65 days <laughs> good grief right okay that man died oh my um, gosh so it was quite um there's quite a lot of controversy around the starving brides yeah um, interestingly depending on how you look at it so one of the newspapers talks about um women being particularly interested in talks about the women staring and gazing at 
the starving bride with an almost a sort of awe. Okay. So in that way, we can kind of understand that maybe they think, um, is it a form of control that these women are actually making money from their situations? Are they impressed by it? Um, but then we also have the other side of the coin that says, well, there's outside the displays, they would put cardboard cutout representations of the malnourished body um, as it declined throughout the length of this, the fast. So it showed you the representation of how they were at day one, day 10, right. day 20, and so on. So is it kind of more of an understanding them in terms of malnutrition and the Hungry England debate? Yeah. So you have the, you know, the, the Hungry 30s, the working classes are supposedly suffering um, through lack of food and nutrition yeah. um, and it, it, then trying to understand that in relation really to um, the amount of newspaper reports that I have that said the police are there, they're not very happy we want to shut these these shows down we're not yeah. very happy about it but you also have then these people that are making money through their, their situation mm. so it's a very interesting and quite a complex exhibit to get your head around mm. the, it's multifaceted the way that people can understand this one freak show so it's not just about spectacle really there's so much more about these shows than initially meets the eye mm. so i'm guessing then i mean so you're saying this is the the sort of the 1930s that these starving brides are a real thing so we, yeah. we like you say there's a around this sort of idea of well clearly lots of people are really going very hungry at that particular period so clearly there's some sort of interest going on there that's that's really really fascinating um i mean how, how long does this go on for how long is this a phenomenon for does this for want of a better word when does this die out so it lasts throughout really the 1930s it's right. probably about 1940 that you're seeing you're not seeing them in the papers as yeah. much but right the way through every summer season you will you will have um somebody somebody will be starving and there'll be controversy about it but then also it's specifically in seaside resorts so yeah. i think that's quite interesting in itself you're not seeing the same numbers of people starving in other places yeah and i'm not really sure why that is um right. perhaps it's because of the entertainment space you're yeah. not going to have such sideshows really yeah. elsewhere um but then we have it it links right back to you know victorian thin men yeah which yeah. probably phenomenon in the the 19th century but we have it slightly changing and it's got this active element to it so they're not yeah. just thin they're actually actively starving mm. um, and that's something that people going to the shows you know working class visitors to blackpool or margate they can relate to that yeah, feeling yeah. Yeah. that starvation um and that's probably what causes the controversy about it actually mm. britain doesn't want to be known as hungry england and um, they don't want to know that their work their working classes are are malnourished etc mm. so yeah i would say that's probably why they're so um there's so much controversy surrounding them yeah yeah um so i mean as well you're saying then that this would sometimes be men as well as women and they'd be newlyweds and and this would be money to set up a home to make a life and so actually then there's something there like you say about that idea of sort of being active or agent and having some level of control actually it's not that you're just being passively gazed upon and that you're a victim of circumstance here actually you're diminished for a while but ultimately the idea is that it's to move on from that and but did, did, did lots of people die 
doing this? I mean, I mean, surely you're walking a very, very dangerous line here. Yeah, so there was definitely, um, there's a man in Blackpool called Ricardo Sacco, and he dies following the 65-day fast. Oh. Um, but the newspapers reported that his closest friends and family said that he didn't die because of his fasting, he died of stomach complaints. So there was obviously right. this attempt to uh, cover up the um, the fact that probably the fasting was related to death in yeah. the end. Um, and we also have another guy um, called, he's a, a vicar who um, is called the Prostitutes Padre. Right. Um, and he uh, basically gets kicked out of the church because he's befriending some prostitutes. There's right. not... It's not clear whether he's uh, helping them or having sexual relations with them, but he basically fasts as a kind of moral um, crusade, saying, I'm I'm not guilty, right. I want to prove my innocence. Um, and he also dies as part of a fast, but he um, unfortunately gets eaten by a lion. Oh, <laughs> right. It's not exactly. Uh, it's not exactly linked to the fasting, but he is fasting, and then he gets eaten by a lion at seaside resort. So it's clearly a very dangerous job. <laughs> For more reasons than you would maybe think. Yeah, good grief. Okay. Wow. Um, just sort of, I'm on, wanting to un- unpick this a little bit more. So thinking about the the women um, do, you know, doing their whole sort of you know enforced fasting. Um, I mean, obviously, like, the 1930s is the period where, well, sort of the start of the 20th century is where we get this real mania with reducing, don't we? And that whole idea of sort of um, toning the body up and, you know, the idea of, you know, we really do need to take more exercise. Also, that whole 1930s thing of the government realising, sort of following the First World War, that uh, the nation was in an absolutely atrocious state of health and probably wasn't very well able to defend itself because our diets were so terrible so presumably i mean there must have been an element of that coming in there as well that maybe women might go and see these women you know sort of starving themselves and think that's maybe not a role model but you know be quite impressed by this behavior because you know they're sort of being encouraged within the media to become more svelte and, and so on and so forth. Do you think there's any element of that or do, am I sort of maybe oversimplifying the, the scenario there? So I think that is what the newspaper the newspaper report that I've got and it seems to say that it's the women and the young girls that yeah. are looking at the starving brides with awe and kind of interested in their emaciation. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, I think there is an I idea that well maybe we should have more control about our bodies um and you know we maybe we do go without food and maybe we could look look better if we if we trim down a little bit Mm. but then you also have a lot of conflicting messages in the 1930s so there's a lot of um adverts that really promote gaining weight to be happier as well okay right yeah we really do have both sides of the coin um and I guess it's in in some ways it's quite similar today. You've always got some kind of conflicting information about what you should be doing with your health. Yeah. And um, so I think that's part part of the display is kind of understanding them on lots of different levels. And I think both you have the the starving brides as a as something to aim for, mm. and also something to steer clear of completely. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, yeah. The thing it would make me think about as well would be, um, is there a is there a class element to this? Do we know sort of? Do we have any idea of the kind of people who would go and see these things? Uh, you know, sort of based on like you know, I don't know, newspaper is reports or whatever. You know, is there a, is there a class element there? I mean, I'm probably incredibly wrong, but the stuff that I've sort of read around seasides is that you know. They're very big, obviously, working class spaces. I'm sure you get the middle class there as well, obviously. But, you know, these are really sort of bawdy, carnivalesque spaces, you know, where working class people decamp en masse and go crazy for a couple of weeks, you know, or as crazy as they can do with what money they've got. You know, is this a primarily working class thing or did this draw people across the board like, you know, middle class or maybe upper class people thinking, you know, oh, well, we should go and see this, you know, this terrifying spectacle you know sort of you know because obviously it was that's not going to be an issue for them so definitely in the victorian period it was a cross-class phenomenon so you've got queen victoria inviting freaks to her uh, to buckingham palace to really yep she loved them she particularly liked giants and midgets really? <laughs> yeah so it was an upper class thing to do but you had different types of shows so right. you might have a meet and greet with the upper classes and then you might pay um you know a few few pence to go and um see a freak for five seconds in a, a much more rundown venue so right. really where the with the venues that they were held was very important in understanding the type of show you're going to see but definitely right. human curiosity across the board in the victorian period um interested everybody yeah but then as we move into the 20th century it is at the working class seaside resorts right. so you have with the working classes coming to to specific i use blackpool market and south end on sea as my examples right um, and you have the upper classes then move to different resorts okay yeah so, so less less bawdy paces and we'd yeah. sort of more refined entertainments and Absolutely. Uh, so you don't get freak shows in those okay. lovely um upper middle class resorts and then what we also have in places like Blackpool and Margate is a segregation so you've got a north and a south and the middle classes will be in one half of the resort and the upper classes will be in the other half of the resort and it'll be uh, the working class section of the resort then have the the freak show so you've got your golden mile for example in Blackpool and that's where you would you would have those types of entertainment different types of sideshow and you might have your fortune teller and and people like that so the upper and middle classes that are in Blackpool will avoid those areas that's absolutely fascinating right um just thinking about the spaces themselves what were the spaces like you know where were these things housed what did you do you know did you pay your money and go in was there a little booth you know how 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 did this work can you try and paint a picture for me of the kind of experience you would have if i got me you know me penny in my hand or whatever that i needed can you talk to me a bit about that about the actual experience yeah so if we have kind of the golden mile as it as an example there would be different booths um, and what you would find outside you might have um just the the signage that tells you what's inside you might have like the starving bride you've got the cutout representations outside the outside the booth and you go in and you might there might be something for you to walk around so i know with the starving brides they would walk into the booth and they looked down upon the scene of the bride and the bridegroom lying there in their coffins 
Good grief. Um, and they, there would often be a showman that would tell you a few things about the, the act that you're going to see and then really hurrying people on their way to get as many people through as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got that with lots of different. So we've got um, a half man, half woman, um, and they have newspaper um, kind of headlines outside his exhibit to tell you a little bit about what's in there. Um, yeah, so they're very covered up. So you're not going to, to just see them standing on the, the beach or the, the boardwalk. Um, but you would definitely um, be going into a, a private space. And yeah. I think that's quite interesting in itself that these uh, people aren't just walking around. Yeah. That being said, we also have um, midgets are very, very, very popular uh, seaside freaks. Um, and they have their own midget time within in um, Blackpool. Um, oh my goodness! Right, okay. Which is is very very different from like the half man half woman, which is perhaps a bit a bit uh, covered up because it's so sexually explicit. Really, um, right? Yeah. So we have then the midgets are in their midget village with their midget sized post office, midget sized police station, and they go about their daily business. So the way that I kind of conceptualise it is it's probably like a miniature village that you would go and visit um, today. Um, And what then holidaymakers are invited to do is walk around the midget village, which I think is is really interesting because who is the freak in a midget village? Mm. It's not not the midget. God, yeah, it's you, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a... a sense of role reversal there um, I don't know if you've seen Carl Pilkington's An Idiot Abroad when he goes to a midget village in, in China no 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 please tell please tell so he goes and he tries to to fit into the different types of houses in um, the Chinese midget village and it's supposed to be quite comedic but I think it makes an important point yeah. of understanding actually that people who are physically different that's the only difference between them and supposedly normal people. And I think that's that's kind of similar to what was happening in the early 20th century yeah. with midget villages is they were, the public were really um, experiencing the, their physical abnormality because they were equating yeah. it with the space and showing yeah. that actually it's the space that's causing the, the difference, not the people. Yeah. And... Um- you mentioned a moment ago about the sort of the sexually explicit nature of some of the 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 stands, which in some ways I was a bit surprised at first. And I think, no, of course, of course it's going to be. That would make perfect sense. And actually, to seaside as well, there's so much other racy stuff going on as well. Of course, there's going to be some racy stuff there. I mean, well, would kids be allowed in these exhibits? Or would, you know, because I'm imagining young lad may be allowed to run free, you know, sort of running around. He's on his holiday. You know, his parents have said, here's a little bit of money. Now clear off and leave me alone whilst I sit and have a snooze on the beach. He's going to make a beeline. For the rudest stand, surely, isn't it? I mean, do, do, do kids get into these? Do they try and get into these? Do you know anything about that? or are, are... Yeah, I think kids were allowed to go into them. There wasn't kind of an 18-plus age limit. Right. Um, but there definitely was concern about it. There was um, a waxworks, Madame Tussauds, same as in London. Yeah. Um, and there was quite a, a lot of concern about that because a lot of 
a lot of the waxworks were just showing venereal disease. Um, no kidding! Oh my yeah, gosh! In many different forms. Um, so is that is yeah. that at Blackpool? Or... Yeah. Because they've yeah, still got, uh, like, imagine two swords now, haven't they? So, oh, yeah. my goodness, I'd totally go and see that. That's, that's, that's fascinating. I'd also go and see it. Um, <laughs> yeah, so there was concern, but there was no ban on right. these. There was concern about them very generally. Yeah. But there was, um, you know, some of them, it was said, you know, women and children are more than welcome to come here. Like, it's not going to cause them any emotional damage. Mm. Um yeah, so it was seen as a bit of fun for all the family, really. Right. And that's, that's, like you say, that you're saying they're showing venereal disease at various stages. The, clearly, the, the claim here is that it's educational, isn't it? That it's not actually, you know, voyeuristic and unpleasant. And, you know, it's, yeah. it's educating, you know, people about the dangers of these sorts of things. And presumably the, the concern that's being expressed isn't by working class people necessarily. It's most likely probably by middle class you know respectable you know sort of society isn't it i guess yeah you have the local local authorities local councillors local um police people like that they're the ones that are really pushing that and it's all linked to they don't want blackpool or margate to be seen as working class seaside resorts they want to attract back the upper class clientele so even though there is this concern um about the effect it will have on the working classes there's also a concern about the the perception of the town yeah. more generally in Britain yeah and I guess if you're a you're a town that has previously had quite a lot of cultural cachet to see that eroded away and then to see a, a very different sort of clientele coming in must really sort of stick in the throats I guess of some people so on and so forth so I guess there's there's that there as well isn't there Okay, um, so what have I got left on my little question list then? So I've said I've got here, I've got two questions left about the legacy of the freak show and it walking the line between emancipation and exploitation, which I think we kind of talked about, but maybe we can try and flesh that out a little bit more. So I've got here, I wonder if you could talk a bit about the history of the freak show and the notion of difference as spectacle. Is there anything you wanted to sort of talk about there? I think this idea really of difference as spectacle is really interesting, mm-hmm. not just as making a spectacle out of somebody or something, mm. but also taking that idea of actually through making a spectacle of somebody who's physically different, mm. we calm our own anxieties about the way that we are. So we normalise ourselves and say, well, we're not that person, so we're okay. So we're, we don't have, you know abnormal genitalia so we're okay sexually we're, we're calming that kind of anxiety down I think that's really interesting mm. particularly when you look at people like the fat lady or the fat boy mm. you're kind of looking at them saying well I'm not that fat so I'm okay. okay maybe I need to engage with that reducing culture maybe I need to um you know take part in seaside fitness activities to calm myself down and, and really kind of tone up but um, but I'm okay, and I think that's a really interesting through through spectralizing something. We can really normalize ourselves, or they could normalize themselves. Yeah, and I think really the similarities between the Victorian period and the 20th century freak show is really interesting. So the human curiosity and difference really continuing throughout, you know, the 19th mm. and the 20th century with very little changing. Yeah, apart from the types that are, are interested in it perhaps mm. 
Um, I'm sure the working classes continue to be interested in unusual things and the unusual people. They're just not attending freak shows yeah. in the same in the same way and in the same spaces. Can I can I ask you? I mean, it it might be I don't know. It might be a deaf question. But do, does our or does the relationship with freak shows shift? I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm guessing there won't be as many freak shows during the Second World War because people are a bit busy fighting the war. Um, but do you have we have you found anywhere that there's sort of a reduced interest in freak shows post-war? Because obviously, you've got like the horrors of war and people coming back from war very badly injured. Um, is there any evidence of like a, a lull in interest in in that sort of thing or i i would lean on the side of saying actually there's not there's not much difference right. in terms of people being interested in it they mm. continue until at seaside resorts really until um seaside resorts start to decline yeah so when seaside resorts aren't as um, popular and and broad or more popular mm. then we see freak shows declining but i we see the rise of things like cinema, mm. that and horror movies, Frankenstein, mm. uh, even 1930s uh, freaks. Yeah. Um, and with the rise of all of these different forms of uh, really indulging your interest in human curiosity, then yeah. they become more important. And I think really you see this continuity right the way out in the 20th century. I don't yeah. think it ever goes away human curiosity in physical difference yeah. or mental difference i think it's something that we are still interested in today mm. yeah. um if anything you know the documentaries that we see on channel four and channel five <laughs> yeah very similar yeah They're constructed in almost identical ways so we we see them as scientific or medical and that's why we would want to look at embarrassing bodies because it's scientific it's telling us something it's educating us yeah. But actually, we all want to go up at the people with the unusual disfigurement. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, um, and I think that's just part of us being human, really, is being interested in people who are different. Mm. Um, we also have this also historical interest in uh, freak shows. So you have people, uh, American Horror Story, for example, right? That has a series on on freak shows, and they use famous freaks throughout the series so they're, mm. they're based on true historical characters um, and they give us kind of a little bit of insight but it gives us acceptability of staring at this person because we're seeing it through a historical lens so it's oh not it legitimizes yeah yeah it's not necessarily looking at somebody here and now in the present but looking looking back at the past yeah yeah still looking at the two-headed lady yeah. or um and you're still interested in you know how do Siamese twins have sex <laughs> yeah in that yeah. relationship play, play out really yeah. um on tv so I think yeah I don't think we ever really see a lull mm. we did we definitely see the decline of, of going to a freak show um as specifically to look but then we get to do that now on the privacy of our own home mm. yeah yeah so I mean that will lead me then to my last question then do you feel yourself based on your your research um do you think we've moved forward in terms of our representations of disability and difference do you think we're just 
you seem to be suggesting that maybe we're just in the same sort of place it's just maybe different spaces in which we consume these things but do you think we've moved forward i think that we all have this inherent curiosity in Mm. in indifference and i think that that remains consistent i don't think it ever really changes but the way that we express that obviously changes the way that we engage with it changes as well yeah um in terms of perhaps we have more agency people have more agency today so the yeah. the question of agency is really interesting because particularly in the 19th century you do yeah. have people that are brought in from other countries that are of course yeah not able to decide that that's what they want to do um and you, perhaps the starving brides had to do what they did because they had no other means of survival mm, yeah um, yeah so perhaps more agency and people have more agency in the way that they are displayed today but I definitely think that yeah that that human curiosity remains consistent Mm. Um, and it's it's had to change the way that we um, consume disability because of um, the rise of political correctness but um, yeah I think I think we are as interested in other people (laughs) as we've always been that's human nature (laughs) thanks very much to emma for that really engaging insight into those provocative peripheral spaces i really enjoyed this conversation i thought it really gave me food for thought around the regulation of bodies and of spaces around the ethics and politics of spectatorship and around the public discourse around bodies plus it really fed my fascination for the hyperbole of showmanship be that linked to a sideshow or a cinema screening I was particularly intrigued by the notion that freakery is relative and I found what these entertainments and the public's reactions to them revealed about British society and conditions in the early 20th century to be particularly interesting. I was excited to see how much crossover there was here with my work on women in the public sphere in that same period. How many women responded, for example, to the starving brides and Emma's suggestions as to the reasons for that. If you want to see or hear more from Emma, she's on Twitter at Emma. Jane Purse. Purse spelt P-U-R-C-E. Her Wellcome Trust funded article, Scales of Normality, Displays of Extreme Weight and Weight Loss in Blackpool, 1920 to 1940, develops a number of the points that Emma and I just discussed, using a number of fascinating contemporaneous resources such as newspaper articles and evocative photographs. It's recently been published in the Journal of Cultural and Social History. If you want to give it a read, and I highly recommend that you do, it can be accessed via a pinned link at the top of Emma's Twitter feed. I've got a number of exciting conversations lined up for you over the next few months, inspired in some ways by this and by other recent podcasts. So I'm hoping to bring you a podcast that examines wrestling and the spectacle and performance of wrestling bodies. And for those of you who are aware of my obsession with Soho's Windmill Theatre, I'm extremely excited to say I had a wonderful conversation over the summer with a real-life windmill girl, Jill Millard Shapiro, and I'll be sharing much of that with you soon. So all that remains is for me to say thanks to John Ashbrook of Radio Pictures for his tech input, to Emma for speaking so engagingly about freak shows, to the Shannon Riley trio for allowing me to use their song Trouble as the Here's Looking at You intro music, and to you for listening to the podcast. Feel free to offer your opinions on what we've discussed today or your suggestions for potential future interviewees on Twitter at Dr Smut. 
all one word or on the Here's Looking at You website where you can also sign yourself up to be updated when the latest Here's Looking at You podcast drops. I'll be back in a few weeks for another conversation about the intersection of gender, sexuality and performance. So until next time, here's looking at you.